This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. We have been on a break here at Fintech Beat, as well as gearing up for a new season. But my wonderful overachieving co-host Julian Ha, the executive recruiter extraordinaire at Hydrogen Struggles, had the good fortune of sitting down with Max Galka, the founder of Elementus, a blockchain search engine, about one of the issues so many of our listeners are thinking about, especially those of you in the crime-fighting space, namely the integrity of crypto markets and the financial crime issues associated with the space. Now, virtually anyone dealing in crypto has been aware of some of these issues, but we've noticed that people rarely take the time to unbundle the drivers of financial crime, like ransomware, or the degree to which things like the Bitcoin blockchain are indeed suitable or not to facilitating financial crime. Now, we'll be covering these and other issues and companies in the future, but this interview will be to kick off the conversation and begin to tackle the issues so many of our listeners are grappling with now, like... How transparent is the blockchain? And what does it mean for the integrity of the crypto economy? Danger! Danger! Get on the floor! Max, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Julian. Glad to be here. One of the more common criticisms of crypto is that it's, you know, becoming the preferred payment of, of ransomware. It's the maybe the currency of choice for those with more nefarious intentions. But first of all, how do you define ransomware? And, and you know, maybe you could talk about how you see that trajectory going. Sure. So r- ransomware is, is an interesting topic. There are a lot of ecosystems that operate within the blockchain. Ransomware is one that jumps out to me as being among um, really the, the most concerning. And uh, in terms of defining ransomware, it, it really has evolved a lot over time. So ransomware... Um, circa 2015 looks very different from ransomware today. And it, it has evolved on uh, three or four different dimensions. Um, one is the, um, well, I'd say the, the size of the payment. That in 2015, the average payment uh, was, I think, around 300 bucks. Typically, it was, it was um, personal computers that were targeted indiscriminately. Um, so kind of very small time operation run by lone wolf hackers. Um, over time, uh, that evolved into um, more sophisticated organizations getting behind ransomware and targeting uh, medium-sized business, um, local infrastructure, hospitals, schools, and in those cases, uh, you know, you can re- you can take a lot more, you can ask for a lot more ransom. And uh, just to be clear, the the ransom payment, it, what it's for, is the when the ransomware infects your system, what it does is it locks up and encrypts your files. So what you're paying for is the decryption key to get your computer back. 
you know, once uh, once criminal organizations got involved, that's when ransomware as a service kind of be, uh, emerged and became the dominant model, as it still is today. So you typically have a large criminal organization behind the ransomware, and you have a group of affiliates who may uh, have no uh, knowledge of the, the criminal organization on a personal level, but are able to uh, effectively rent the ransomware software, deploy it on some computer, and take a cut of that money. And where that is going now is in the past, the, uh, the people that have acted as affiliates were hackers and other people who were able to get access to computers through um, different kinds of vulnerabilities. It's moving much more towards um, insiders. So people who work at organizations. So these ransomware groups can now offer somebody a life-changing amount of money to go into work and quietly uh, deploy uh, the ransomware software into the computers. The targets these days have continued to grow in, in scope so you have uh, last year, uh, the Colonial Pipeline, that was a very uh, well-known incident that really uh, shut down uh, the, the country's largest oil pipeline. You had lines at the gas station, um, JBS meatpacking, that really impacted the meatpacking supply chain. Um, and those ransomware payments uh, in 2021 uh, got up to the tens of millions. I think there were some approaching um, 100 million. And 2022, we're only halfway through, but uh, so far this year, well, just a few months ago, ransomware targeted uh, basically the Costa Rican government and put Costa Rica into a state of emergency. Actually, uh, the ransomware group was threatening to take down the, uh, the administration, so threatening regime, regime change. I, I wouldn't say that that was really a, a credible threat, but the fact that that's even being talked about really kind of uh, is quite sobering as to the uh, the potential that ransomware has. And at this point, ransomware is often now considered a triple threat. So whereas originally the threat was that it, it would lock up your computer and you would need to pay to get those, uh, get your, your files back, ransomware today, the much bigger threat is the data breaches. So in addition to locking up your files, Ransomware will, will steal whatever information it can find and will release it publicly if the ransom isn't paid. And uh, in some cases, the threats uh, not only are made to the company, but often to the company's business partners, customers, affiliates. So it can kind of really metastasize and spread out to a very big threat that ransomware can cause. So. You know, where ransomware is today, very scary situation. It's caused some major problems, but it's getting so much attention by the government, not so much because of where it is today, but because of where things go when you project these trends forward. You know, I, I totally missed the Costa Rica thing. And, and that's really worrying because I'm literally planning a vacation in December for the family. So huh. I, I, I hope uh, I hope the government is still standing <laughs> by the yeah. time we, we land in San Jose Airport. But, uh, yeah, believe, believe it or not, it was actually uh, two ransomware. So they, uh, they were hit with one ransomware by one ransomware family, and then uh, they were almost out of their way, uh, had gotten that one out of the way, and immediately a second ransomware breached their system. And they went through the whole uh, process again. But on the serious note, I mean, I mean, this is like exponential, right? You start with small, you know, mom and pop, you know, you and I, someone is saying, hey, unless you pay me some some crypto, Bitcoin, ETH, I'm not going to, you know, I'll, I, I won't unlock your computer to now attacking sovereigns. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, oh, that's yeah. a huge leap. Um, oh, yeah. And 
you, you know, you have uh, recently in Canada, it was uh, Rogers, the internet service provider that was taken down. I don't think that one was ransomware, but um, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, you could imagine that being a target. And when that happened, uh, one of my colleagues happened to be in Canada at the time. I couldn't reach him by phone. Um, you know, events were canceled. Um, a lot of businesses were shut down. You could imagine, um, uh, I mean, there's a million and one scenarios you could imagine, but, you know, imagine that happening during, say, an election day. Um, you also have nation state actors that are behind some ransomware. And yeah, really, uh, when you kind of imagine the full attack surface of, uh, national infrastructure, government, um, you know, ransomware is, uh, you know, hard to imagine kind of what the cap is on uh, the damage that it could uh, conceivably cause. So, so, so now, now, now let's try to talk about the, the, the white knights here and the crime fighting crusaders um, that are, that are trying to uh, stop this and, and prevent, uh, prevent governments from falling or, 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 you know, telecom providers from being frozen up. How are people addressing this? How are companies addressing this? How are companies like Elementus helping in, in this fight? Yep. Uh, can you give us some, some hope here, Max? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think there is hope. And I think this is one that is going to be resolved. Um, I, I can't speak to all the different ways that uh, it's being addressed. Um, it, it certainly requires international coordination. And there is a lot of that happening within the private sector. I think there's a big role to play there with freezing ransomware out of the financial system because uh, Bitcoin is the preferred method for uh, ransomware to collect its funds. And at some point, uh, if they want to monetize it, they need to be able to cash it out. And that's really the point at which the private sector can really play a role and prevent that money from being cashed out. You know, the reason why we're focused on ransomware, our, our primary line of business is working with companies that are getting into crypto uh, to help them avoid any kind of contact with entities like ransomware or Russian crime groups or human traffickers. And our hope is that with technology like ours, once it's adopted by uh, the community uh, at large, Bitcoin is not going to become such a great method for, uh, for ransomware to collect its funds because what happens on the blockchain is happening in plain sight. There's nowhere to hide. And so there is no technical reason why any third party should be receiving ransomware, the proceeds of ransomware, and uh, not know about it. So that's, uh, that's the part that we hope to, to be able to play. Of course, the hard part, as I think you alluded to at the beginning, is that it, it's hard to decipher the, the blockchain, right? It, it's like strings of numbers in the matrix, right? So you need someone to be able to, to read <laughs> yes. those flows yes. and to actually understand what it means. And is that what Elementus is doing? It's trying to help folks visualize that and, and trace things? Uh, yes. Well, uh, so, so we consider ourselves a data-first company. So before you even uh, talking about the products that we offer, uh, our focus is very much on getting the data into a format that can be readable, usable, understandable, queryable, and where it's easy to pull the insights out. So there are a lot of pieces to that. Part of it is the data infrastructure, what kind of databases you, you put it in, the way the data is formatted. But the, the biggest piece is uh, figuring out who's who on the blockchain. And I say that some people get scared because they think that means we're identifying uh, Joe, uh, Joe Bloggs' wallet. Um, we don't identify individuals. Our focus is really on the bad actors, the, the ransomwares, the human traffickers, those kind of characters. And yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult problem. 
identifying those addresses. So the, uh, the process comes in two parts, the attribution and the clustering uh, as they're known, the clustering being um, figuring out which addresses roll up into the same owner. So which addresses all kind of go together. And then the second part is going out into the real world and finding some way to link a real world entity, be it ransomware or uh, an exchange or a gambling website to those clusters. And it's really the clustering is the, the difficult of those two pieces. It's a big series of very complex data science problems. And that's where the majority of our uh, technology is, is in um, the technology for being able to connect blockchain addresses together. So in a, in a perfect world, instead of looking at the blockchain and seeing a bunch of random characters, anonymous accounts sending Bitcoin back and forth and not having any context, uh, the data would look like what you would see traditional financial data look like. Here's this counterparty sending this much of Bitcoin, Ether, whatever cryptocurrency to this other counterparty. Because despite all the complexity that you see when you look at the blockchain records at a, at a, fun, like a fundamental level, that's all that people are really doing on blockchain is sending crypto assets from one account to another. And so we do our best to take it from the native format and put it into that kind of format, which makes it easy to read. So I, I can certainly see how, you know, maybe um, financial crime enforcers, authorities, um, you know, three-letter agencies would be customers, right? Mm -hmm. But would private sector companies also be customers? And if so, why, right? Is yes. it their compliance functions? And how would they use that data to help prevent fraud or, or, or non-compliance, sure. um, you know, sort of uh, issues? Sure. So the uh, the use case for um, like federal law enforcement and the use case for the private sector for compliance purposes, um, it's really the same use case just looked at from opposite perspectives. So if you take, for example, the Colonial Pipeline ransomware and you follow the money forward to see where it goes, um, what law enforcement is typically looking for is the exit points that some, somewhere they need to be able to cash out that Bitcoin. And if law enforcement can identify where they're cashing it out, that gives them a real world contact point that they can subpoena and get information and, and get more clues to continue the case. So law enforcement is following a, uh, the movement of the money from the point of the crime to the point of the cash out. Now, if you're, if you're in the private sector, you are one of those cash out points potentially or at least uh, it may not be cashing out. It may be laundering. It may be, but you are that point where the criminal. Un unknowingly, right? Unknowingly. Yeah, that, un that, unknowingly, yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 Um, so from your perspective, you're not following the money forward to see where it goes. You're following the money back to its source to see where it came from. So if you are that um, third party that the ransomware money is using to cash out, um, in order to, assuming you don't want your uh, platform to be used as a money laundering uh, system for ransomware. That's when you would use software like ours to be able to uh, trace the funds back to their source and assign some sort of risk score to the incoming transaction. So it sounds like a company like Robinhood maybe could have benefited from a, a system like 
yours? Because uh, I think they were recently fined thirty million by the New York State Department of Financial Services. Is, mm-hmm. is that is that a fair uh, fair sort of proposition that? In hindsight, they should have had a system like that. Well, I, I, I don't know the details them. of that case, so I, I can't say whether that's the case or not. But it, certainly, if, if the fine was for anything in the vein of transacting with OFAC-sanctioned entities or uh, facilitating money laundering under the banking, uh, uh, the BSA, then yes, that would be a situation where we would hopefully be able to help. I think you know the the, the charge was that uh, Robinhood crypto LLC didn't maintain or certify compliant anti-money laundering and cybersecurity programs, hmm. right? So that's why I, I, I referenced it because it sounds like that's a case where maybe Elementus could have yeah. helped a bit. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a Robinhood user myself, so yeah, maybe we should give those guys a call. I don't know. That's, uh... <laughs> there, you <go. laughs> there you go. Yeah. And kind of what role does accurate data then play in kind of know your customer and know your transaction ecosystem? Mm-hmm. Ransomware tends to follow some very distinctive patterns online, on chain. So typically, um, once the ransomware payment is made, that's kind of where in the, uh, the general news, when you hear about ransomware, that's kind of where the story ends. But that's where we pick things up. And from there, we can follow the money as it moves and little pieces will be sent off to third parties. Sometimes it will be for um, different kinds of service providers, such as anonymous email or um, web, what they call bulletproof web hosting, which can't be taken down because it sits offshore or uh, various other um, uh, various other technologies that they need for their uh, activities. And then ultimately kind of ends up uh, into a central hub wallet, which typically would be the large crime family that is uh, uh, behind it. And um, the reason we go through and map out all of these ransomware addresses is because um, the amount of risk that we can protect our customers from is, is directly proportional to the number of ransomware addresses we can identify. So if we can't identify address A as being ransomware and they send money into um, deposit money with one of our customers and, and use them for money laundering, well, that's a, that's a, that's a problem for them, right? They have, they have facilitated uh, money laundering unknowingly. The only way that we can protect them is by, on our side, going through as comprehensively as possible and identifying the addresses. And by doing so, it just helps to increase the coverage and the percentage of risky activity that we can flag for uh, for our customers. Is the impact of the crypto winter that's descended, what impact would might that have? Would that increase more hacking, more nefarious activity, or will this provide a little bit of a, a, a hiatus, a little bit of pause? I, I'm trying to think that through and the implications of kind of this phase that we're all going through. Yeah. Well, I so I I, uh, I think that's the million dollar question. If any you know if anyone has the answer, I would love to know. I think that um, well, there, there's a lot of crypto businesses that have been impacted very directly. Any crypto business that depends on trading volumes, or that depends on the value of a particular asset, or uh, is somehow linked to trading activity. Right now, the activity, the volumes, that's all fallen by a lot, and so those businesses, it, this certainly is not a uh, the best time right now. 
I would consider Elementus to be more of a picks and shovels business. So the services that we sell, uh, when I, it's not entirely true what I'm about to say, but but um, uh, crypto services, crypto exchanges, uh, financial institutions that are operating on chain need compliance, um, whether times are good or times are bad. There are some aspects of uh, you know, what's happening now that are that, that work against us. I would say that uh, a lot of people are very distracted. So compliance for a crypto exchange is rarely the um, kind of the first order business consideration. So if a, if a crypto exchange is worried about going insolvent, that's you know probably not the best time to be uh, pitching them on, uh, in a, in, on a compliance uh, solution. On the other hand, I think that all of what's happened recently has really brought in a lot more attention from the regulators. Uh, there's been some very serious activity from some of the regulators and a uh, few that have been in the news over the last few weeks. So we've, uh, we've, we've received quite a few inbound um, inquiries from potential customers, really just based on some of the regulatory developments that they're seeing. So I think, you know, for us, I would say uh, at the margin, it's really kind of a wash as far as how it impacts our business. But stepping outside of the business and as just a big believer in this technology and someone who wants to see it thrive, yeah, I think that these kind of events do set back the progress of the technology um, by a bit. So, hmm. you know, all of this turmoil may have uh, kind of added an additional year to uh, the timeline to um, mainstream adoption. All that being said, I think there is a silver lining here, which uh, in the long term will be positive, which is that most of uh, what you're reading right now about the platforms that are in trouble, particularly the lending platforms, is the centralized ones. The decentralized ones seem to be doing all right. And the advantages of, of DeFi have uh, to this point been largely theoretical. There haven't been too many examples where um, operating on a DeFi platform really would have led to a different outcome from uh, working with a centralized one. Uh, but here now you have some real examples where, yes, like these advantages that DeFi offers, so the transparency that it offers, these scenarios really do happen and it, it, it really does have some major advantages. So I think in the long term, my hope is that that's really the, uh, the enduring effect of, uh, of all this turmoil. Well, thank you so much, Max, for joining me in this conversation. I, I feel like we've all really taken the red pill here. Mm -hmm. uh, we've touched on the darker side of crypto, ransomware, hacking, money laundering. But I think you've also provided some hope and a lot of solutions available, such as Elementus. So I'm going to call this the crime fighting episode. <laughs> um, fantastic. Well, really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for sharing your insights and knowledge and wishing you, know, you and Elementus much success. Uh, thank you very much, Julian. I uh, really appreciated the discussion as well. Like any Generation Xer, I love the Matrix analogy of understanding blockchain forensics. But for more than just the fact that data are ultimately just strings of numbers. You see, just like in The Matrix, every new sequel created an upgraded roster of villains, or at least the villains themselves were upgraded. Shout out to Mr. Smith. But there is one line I think policymakers should draw. The longstanding argument that public blockchains are inherently more suitable to money laundering than everyday largely unregulated cash seems not only inaccurate, but also does a disservice to attempts to getting bad money out of the financial system. 
Instead, the focus ought to be on those parts of the system that are the on-ramps to fraud and balancing enforcement approaches in ways that can still afford some degree of privacy and dignity for people seeking faster and often cheaper ways to move money. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.